Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined by a great crew this week uh, to talk about uh, a bunch of interesting issues. We're going to discuss developments in Washington and policy for the Bitcoin and crypto and digital asset space. Um, we're going to talk about Optimism's airdrop, which actually happened uh, yesterday, Tuesday, May 31st. Um, and then we're going to talk about Solana. Um, our team, Saul Kadir, who's on the call here, um, released an excellent and detailed report on Solana. And we're going to ask him to explain some of what he found and then have a discussion around um, some of the issues and, and adoption that that Saul's report highlighted. Um, I'm joined this week by a lot of folks. Um, we've got the entirety of the Galaxy Digital Research team here. Uh, Lule Mescal, Saul Kadir, Christine Kim, and Charles Yu. Um, and I'm also joined to talk about Washington stuff with Galaxy Digital's um, head of public policy and regulatory affairs, Tyler Williams. But before we get into any of that, as always, let's hook up with our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading um, to talk about markets um, we're still sort of, it feels like crab territory to me, at least in crypto. We did have a, a nice sort of bump um, over the weekend um, in Bitcoin and on Monday, um, but we're coming down a little bit. But what's the, what else are we seeing in the market, BIM? And, and you know, just where, do you, you know, what's the positioning look like today? Yeah. So um, just to give folks some, some context, I think the, the rally that you had in, in risk markets and in crypto um, o- over the, the holiday weekend and, and through the tail part of, of last week was was more technical in nature rather than fundamental. Um, the market was incredibly oversold, you know, whether it was crypto or, or, or stocks um, from a technical perspective. Um, and you also had, you know, month-end rebalancing flows that were going through in, in, in equities. Um, and you had some, you know, most likely some, some redemptions out, out of crypto funds. Um, and so there's a lot of technical factors that led to sort of a low liquidity um, rally in, in crypto and, and, in, and in stocks over the past couple of days. But to start the month um, today, you know, we're, we're fairly heavy in, in most markets. Um, you know, ETH rejected 2K and is now trading around, you know, 1830. S&P, you know, hit a high of, of 4200. And now you're, you know, sitting at like 4070. Um, and it sort of seems like the market's, you know, like over the, the technical flow we've had over the past, you know, called three, four days and, and is now moving on to like what's in front of us. Um, and what's in front of us is data this morning that came out really strong. Um, I said manufacturing beat expectations. So did prices paid. You know, you still have a lot of job openings. So what does the market know now? What it did, um, you know, a month ago that the economy is still super hot. And then, you know, when you put that through the lens of the Fed's response function, you know, when the economy's super hot, they're going to be more hawkish, right? What does more hawkish mean? That means, you know, more aggressive rate hikes, more aggressive tapering, you know, forward guidance being being more measured and so on and so forth. And that generally means that, you know, risk assets, you know, sell off. And, and that's what you're, you're seeing today. Yeah. With that, I'll... Yeah. I mean, it, it's so interesting that... Um, we just still it comes back to the inflation story right for the fed i mean if markets are hot and inflation is low that's great right i mean that's the economy chugging along and inflation's low even if employment is really low and and uh, sorry unemployment is really low that's great a lot of people are working right it's the is it just is it inflation that is the rub in this story still 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, inflation really hits people, you know, incredibly hard, right? Um, everybody has to spend money on, on groceries. Everybody has to, you know, pay for rent and, you know, uh, pay for, for their lives. It's an issue that impacts everybody, including all voters, yeah, right? Right. And it's a very hot button issue. And the, the real sort of reason why the Fed's tackling in inflation is the risk of hyperinflation. Right. The the spiraling, you know, wage commodity sort of um, cycle that you can go through and that historically we have gone to, through. Um, and that's something that the Fed is acutely aware of. Um, and without the Fed taking action, you're certainly down the track of, of, of hyperinflation or it's like, OK, well, what do people do thinking that there'll be high inflation? Oh, I'm going to consume goods sooner rather than later. Well, that's going to drive up prices more and that's going to convince somebody else to you know, buy it and so on and so Sounds forth. Sounds like a death spiral. Death spiral, right? And we've seen that happen. I mean, you, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and, and that's really sort of the risk that central bankers are trying to weigh because, you know, unemployment, as you said, is pretty is pretty good, right? Risk market, you know, stock markets have sold off, bond markets have sold off, but it's still not that bad given the context of the rally you've had over the past yeah. decade, et cetera, right? But it's really the risk that, that thing, inflation spirals out of control, and given that it's an issue that impacts everybody, it is yeah, and it is literally the the second part of the Fed's mandate. You know that's why they're they're so focused on it, and that's why the market's so focused. Right. The on other it. part is employment, and yep. that looks great. So yeah, exactly, <laughs> the main thing they're looking at is inflation. Um, yeah, it's it, I don't know. Maybe bring in Tyler briefly on this too. Just the politics of inflation. I mean, you know, Bim points out every voter has to buy stuff. I mean, I certainly do. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I think that is the conversation that's happening in Washington. People are talking about kitchen table issues, and people are talking about the election cycle, and relative to that is inflation. Everyone's concerned about the Fed's dual mandate. To me, it's a question of are you focusing on price stability or, or are you focusing on full employment? That's interesting. Um, it's, and that is a topical debate that's happening today, and yeah. people who are central bankers are exercised about what is more important. And just to add to that, I mean, you had a, a meeting this week between Biden and, and Powell, a, you know, a closed door meeting. And, you know, that generally happens when you and know, Secretary a, Yellen and Secretary Yellen. Um, that, that generally happens when, you know, it's a political issue. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, Powell is meant to be, you know, data dependent and it's a different I mean, and, branch and of Biden, government. Biden did reaffirm that. Uh, well, I don't know if it's a different branch. I'm not I'm still not really sure what the creature from Jekyll yeah. Island actually is, but. Um, Biden did reaffirm his view of the Fed's independence after this meeting, um, which, you know, is obligatory. Um. (laughs) One thing to add is um, Kevin Warsh, who was a former board governor, was on CNBC this morning. He was talking exactly about this point. And the interesting thing that I heard him say was that if the Fed doesn't take a really aggressive stance on um, price stability and not focus on full employment, that will end up in the same death spiral that we were in the 70s. That's what you're talking about, too, Bimnet. Um, it's just, it continues to be interesting. I don't think we're, it, fundamentally, it doesn't feel like much has changed over the last several weeks where we've been talking about this issue, but, um, I guess, you know, slightly more information as time rolls forward. Um, okay. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Bim, Bim Net. And Tyler's here with us, who I introduced before is Galaxy Digital's head of public policy and regulatory affairs. Um, and Tyler is a former, uh, deputy assistant secretary at the U S treasury department, also has worked uh, extensively on Capitol Hill, um, and so really happy to have him here and um, at Galaxy, but also here on the podcast. Tyler and I, as I mentioned at the end of last week's podcast, spent all last week in Washington 
um, meeting with uh, trade groups, attending a conference, um, talking with um, congressional and Senate staffers about, you know, Bitcoin and crypto policy issues. Um, so we'd love to give a little bit of an update on that and what we're seeing in Washington as it relates to this industry. Um, and, you know, I guess I'll just start it there by asking Tyler and, and, and welcome Tyler and asking him uh, to just, I don't know, give us the lay of the land just broadly in, in Washington um, and then with crypto specifically in Washington. Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on. Um, maybe I'll just do a, a bit of a pullback and say what's happening in Washington from a macro perspective, because while you and I were there attending a conference, there's an entire slate of other issues that are affecting people, and Bibnet was talking a little bit about inflation. Um, so there's a, a world outside of crypto that people are focused on in uh, Washington, yeah. and I think it's important because it uh, influences how crypto policy advances. So on, on a macro basis, you know, time in D.C. is the commodity. And what I mean by that is if you're looking specifically at Congress, they have number of days that they have to manage floor schedule and time, and they have to figure out how to triage uh, different policy issues and how they advance those. Yep. So that's how time is managed from a congressional perspective. Executive branch is a little different in terms of you know their, uh, whether or not they're a prudential regulator or whether or not they're a finance ministry or whether or not they're their Fed uh, in terms of what they control and work on. Mm -hmm. So you know, on a broad macro basis, in, uh, inflation is driving the narrative from a kitchen table uh, perspective in D.C., so people are hyper-focused on that. And President Biden is in the scenario right now where this is his first time defending his majority. So he has a really thin majority in the Senate that is really only a majority by historical norms. And what I mean by that is 50-50 split in the Senate. Uh, but tie goes to the winner and President Biden won. Yep. Um, and then in the House, uh, the Democrats have a significant majority. However, they have to defend in a pretty bad economic climate. And history shows that if you look back on midterm elections, uh, it's better for the minority party. So Republicans are feeling bullish in their economic stance. They're feeling bullish in their political prospects, particularly in the House. The Senate map is a little bit different in terms of uh, senators who are up for re-election and new senators who are trying to get elected. Um, so I don't know exactly how to, prog uh, you know, um, you know, sort of prospect what might happen there, but right. I think it's going to be a closer. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I say all of that because uh, it will influence the balance of the calendar this year, and I'm not that bullish on what gets done. If you look at the topical debates that are happening in the news and uh, things that are going on in the Supreme Court, you know, that, that controls a lot of the oxygen in the room. And then if you table those and just say, what does the Senate have to get done? You know, President Biden is still pushing a reconciliation bill. Uh, they have to get done the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, there's, uh, there's a reconciliation debate that's happening outside of both of those things. And then there's all of the topical debates that are happening. So if, if you're leader Schumer, you have to manage the floor time, that's the commodity I don't know how you get all those things done. Yeah, and let alone, you know, something like movement on a major crypto legislation. Right. Yeah, right. so that's super interesting. And and so do you think just, again, before we talk about the crypto issues, um, do we have, given that calendar and lack of time and other big issues, and then the election coming up in November, like, do we think, just broadly, if you just had, I mean, you know, thumb in the air, do we think we actually see any major crypto legislation actually, like, I don't know, I guess be signed into law by the president, but, you know, or whatever, you know, uh, I don't know what the bar needs to be, um, but 
Finding the law, I think it's really hard to imagine the scenario coming together and the, the balance of this um, congressional yeah. session. What I think you'll see continue is a uh, bipartisan working groups, bipartisan bills be introduced. What I think you'll see is um, members of the House and the Senate recognize that it's a bipartisan issue, so they'll try to lay the groundwork for what could come next Congress. And if I'm right about what happens in the House or the Senate, even if one branch of Congress changes, it increases the likelihood, in my mind, of a bipartisan negotiation happening Mm -hmm. because both political parties will have a mandate to lead. Yep. And they'll have, particularly if you're in the minority, you have a mandate to be able to produce an outcome um, when you're in divided government. Yep. That's going to be fascinating. So, Okay, um, the the issues. I mean, what are we on crypto now? Outside of the macro stuff, which is crowding out a lot of things, but we we did meet with a, a lot of folks and legislative staffs, many of uh, across a range of education levels or of uh, crypto IQ and Bitcoin IQ. But but there were a lot of people who do have high IQ, a high IQ in this space, and are looking at it and working at it, what were they focused on? Yeah, so I, I think they're focused on a variety of different uh, policy issues depending on where they are on the education cycle. So for people who are sort of more advanced uh, crypto enthusiasts from a policy perspective, you know, they're hyper-focused on stable coins. They're hyper-focused on like the, the recent market events surrounding stable coins. Uh, they want to figure out what the path is for a regulated fiat-backed stablecoin, whether or not there is a, a mandate to regulate algo-backed and other types of stablecoins. Uh, they're focused on uh, token taxonomy. Uh, they're focused on market structure and how to divide the lines between our market structure regulators in the U.S. And for listeners, I'm talking about the SEC and the CFTC and uh, they're trying to figure out how you have parallel rule jurisdictions between the U.S. and other uh, countries, um, which if people remember the Dodd-Frank debates, like that was a, a really exercised function about just how you get dealer rule books harmonized between, for example, like the SEC and the JFSA. Right, right. Um, they're focused on illicit finance, depending on like what committees they're working on. So, you know, if you're focused on defense or foreign affairs, you're you tend to be more focused on illicit finance and what other uh, foreign jurisdictions are doing. Uh, Let's see, people talked a lot about tax and accounting standards, which I was almost surprised at because no one likes to talk about tax and accounting (laughs) standards. Um, And then, you know, CBDCs, like that's a topical debate because uh, last week, um, Vice Chair of the Fed, Lael Brainerd, was testifying before the House Financial Services Committee explicitly on uh, CBDCs. So that, those were the things that people were talking about. Yep. Um, on the less advanced side of the spectrum, I would say people are just interested in understanding the technology. And uh, when you hear the industry talk, and I'm talking about the crypto industry, when you hear the industry talk about how they need to engage in a proactive education cycle, it's really to bring people along the curve of understanding the value proposition. So I think that's what Galaxy's there doing. Um, we want to be part of that conversation. We want to educate people, and we want to be sort of a an unhostile resource to people. Yeah, I think um, we did. Sp- that's that's what we were doing last week in particular, right? Because you know, you just joined us a couple months ago. I haven't been down. That was my first time down there. Um, that's you know, I think you know, for those that were sort of very advanced, the the folks that we talked to on these issues, right? It felt to me like stable coins and market structure and 
defining what types of tokens are what and uh, were basically the the main issues. Like I was interested, I, I was pretty surprised um, by to find that Bitcoin wasn't really a topic in a lot of ways, um, which I think was is positive for Bitcoin um, in general. Um, and what I mean is that like I, I didn't hear any real talk about Bitcoin specifically as something that is being targeted for more regulation right now. Um, I think the only two issues that I am aware of that, and again, they weren't sort of big issues last week when we were talking with people, um, is, you know, Bitcoin mining energy usage um, and, you know, criticisms from them on an, uh, of Bitcoin mining on an ESG argument and then unhosted wallet stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's because, you know, there's a world in D.C. of big P politics and little P politics and big P politics is like, does Biden is, is Biden successful in defending his majority in both chambers? Is right. he um, does he have the confidence of the voters? That's big P politics. Little P politics to me is like the jostling between regulators and jurisdictions in Washington. And the little P politics people to me, people are focused on token taxonomy and stable coins because there's a lot of little P politics happening in DC. I see different. So you have the prudential depository regulators who are trying to figure out how they get jurisdiction and authority over the issue. Uh, and then you have um, in the token taxonomy state um, uh, state of the world, like you obviously in the U.S. we're one of the only modern societies that has split enforcement of securities and derivatives. So it's just a natural part of the conversation. Yeah. And you have different oversight committees that oversee each of these. Right. Right. So then they also have, uh, you know, some jostling as to who is going to oversee the various agencies in a future where one of them does something. Right. There, there's an eloquent quote somewhere in there, but like it ain't pretty how the sausage is made. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I, I, I think is uh, it's, it was really interesting to talk about, you know, we, we, some, we spent a lot of time educating folks on the different types of stable coins, um, which we've written about, we wrote about in our um, uh, report on UST, um, you know, fiat backed centrally issued stable coins like a USDC or a Tether um, that hold collateral and then issue an on-chain IOU essentially for a dollar of that collateral. Um, and then, you know, sort of on the far end, algorithmic stable coins with no direct backing, right, that use some kind of um, mechanism or market force to try to get back to $1. This is what, right, TerraUSD was. Um, and, and then in the middle, like crypto collateralized stable coins like a MakerDAO. Um, so we spent a lot of time on that. And, and one thing that I was um, really harping on was as just a point to for folks to understand was that if we have a regulated privately issued fiat backed central stable coin like a USDC or something or a Paxos or a BUSD or a, right or even a Tether if they come in uh, you know into a US regulatory regime um, it, it's only going to be competitive with the riskier stuff if it is usable right and if you can transfer that token to any address the way you currently can Right. But if we restrict if we if we restrict the transferability of the stablecoin token to only be receivable by addresses that have previously KYC with someone, right, a walled garden of whitelisted addresses only, then it just won't be competitive in the market with what people already have access to. And it from a consumer protection standpoint could actually drive users to um, riskier types of things, offshore stable coins or or even algo stables, right? And 100%. And I think the analogy is like risk is like a uh, tube of toothpaste. Like if you squeeze one end, it's going to go out. But on the other end, they're going to be left with nothing. So if you look back on 
um, even recent events in the last uh, in the 2008 crisis that he was largely considered a housing crisis. So, like, what was the response? The response was Dodd Frank, and then what was the aftermath? In the the uh, succeeding years post Dodd Frank, what you saw was a real bleed from mortgage origination being in the banking system to in non bank lenders. And then we ask ourselves, like, why why is the the housing market more risky today? I, it's kind of obvious, like we pushed it into another bucket. Yeah, that's so. What a, what an interesting analogy. Um, well, great. Look, I mean, I think I think uh, we're going to come back to you, Tyler, a lot more as as politics uh, in in cryptocurrency become more intertwined, um, and obviously as there's more developments in Washington. Um, what a what a fascinating like sort of I don't want to call it a conundrum, but like um, you know web of of interests and and. Uh, politics on this issue because it is quite bipartisan um which is unusual right i mean for for issues i mean yeah absolutely i mean especially in financial services um where we've seen things become pretty partisan it is a nonpartisan issue and you're seeing interest from both sides of the aisle so that's that's the the upside and the exciting part yeah and it makes it like really exciting because of all the people that want to work on it at the end of the day we talked about this earlier kitchen table issues like people are politics People own crypto. People are interested in it. Yeah. I forget, we, you know, we always bat around numbers, but, you know, the executive order from the Biden administration had numbers and it was something like, what, 16 million people or something have owned own crypto. We think the number is significantly higher than that in, in the U.S., but obviously. Um, but that's, that's a pretty big chunk, though, like that, even, yeah. even that conservative number. Um, Great. So um, thank you, Tyler. Really appreciate this. Um, We'll be back to you uh, a lot in general, and um, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, But I guess it sounds like we're sort of where rubber really meets the road. We're probably on hold until after the election, but there's work to be done, but unlikely that we see a legislative success. Yeah, we're in the proactive education cycle. Love it. Um, Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. Okay, uh, Chuck uh, is going to help me on this one. optimism launched its airdrop did its airdrop for its token we've talked about this a bunch we argued about civil resistance blacklisting of addresses last week on our pod for optimism but anyway they went ahead with their airdrop their token the op token op optimism um happened yesterday tuesday may uh, may 31st um i don't know chuck how, how did it go yeah um so you know there were some good parts some bad parts the airdrop claiming process, um, I thought it was pretty interesting because it forced you to go through a bit of a short learning module on optimism um, and public goods, uh, read their their own version of the Constitution, and then encouraged everyone to to choose a delegate to make governance decisions for you. Um, and it included a list of like prominent members of the ETH community, and it could also be filtered by certain interests like DeFi, security, or um, the environment. Interesting. Yeah. Still, even though like the team clearly put a ton of effort into the design of the token and the airdrop, um, two key things kind of went wrong with the launch. So first, um, OP began trading before the official announcement from the Optimism team. Um, users were able to to claim the OP tokens by interacting directly with the smart contract um, before the front end was live, and it started around 11 a.m. Eastern and attracted a lot more usage on the network, which led to the second problem. So all the uh, all the demand pretty much like overloaded the, the public RPC, which meant that users couldn't load transactions in their MetaMask. Um, gas prices weren't updating. DEXs weren't updating prices. 
And uh, eventually the team was able to, to stabilize things in the afternoon. And they put out an update saying that they should have made the claims contract possible and that they underestimated the load um, that the public RPC would face. Um, so they made the official announcement for the airdrop at around 5.45 p.m. Um, but by then, almost 25% of the airdrop supply had been claimed. Wow, that's interesting. Like, by presumably by, you know, technically savvy users, right? Like, so not, it seems like it was sort of the more average user was not able to get it until the front end went live because if they can't, don't know how to interact directly with the contract. Yeah, I mean, people were able to squeeze in a couple of transactions, but it was it was very choppy for sure. So, okay, this is what, the first prominent Ethereum roll up l2 to issue a token or i guess you know one of one of the most prominent i guess there's a couple others right chuck but um, yeah you could you could throw a loop ring in there as uh the first roll up and 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 what like boba boba is that are they roll-ups they're uh both forks of optimism yeah yeah okay so they they have tokens but optimism is like the big project on the optimistic roll-up side right right so okay like i guess i'll start with scalability here as a question like um you know, it was overloaded yesterday because of an airdrop, right? We see this with NFT drops on networks, on ETH, on Solana. There's been plenty of instances of these types of things. Like, can, do we? Do you think Optimism can, like, aside from the fact that it was because of their token, just can can Optimism scale, like, in general? Like, if yeah, <laughs> can it? Yeah. I don't know. I guess that's the question. No, yeah. Um, so the Optimism team they put out an update saying that that they focused all of their efforts on the sequencer, um, which was able to to process all the transactions that um, it saw, but it had failed to to upgrade its its public RPC, um, which is a solvable issue. It's not really something that I would say impacts the the actual scalability of, of optimism or that you know, we're even close to those limits, but it does affect the the public perception of the network. And we have seen, um, you know, users actually, you know, uh, swap their, their airdrops like immediately and bridge back to Ethereum um, to use, you know, where there's higher gas fees. I think uh, the optimism, you know, ecosystem kind of has to be built out a little bit more for, to, to entice users to, to really stay on the chain and to, to, to use it. And one thing I would add to that is I think the Optimism team has learned a lot from this first airdrop, especially when it comes to opening up more RPC endpoints so that in terms of the communication protocols between MetaMask and DeFi applications like Uniswap, so that the next time that they do an airdrop, they do have a public facing user interface that can handle the like incoming traffic of users trying to send transactions, receive that um, that token. Um, and I think that it really, one of the things that have been kind of debunked time and again on Twitter straight after the drop was that this doesn't signify, um, a failure in the, in the L2 in the scaling technology that optimism is working on. If anything, I think it signified that the way that the optimism team announced this airdrop and their preparation for this airdrop was significantly lacking. Um, but you know, if these are open networks, people can launch whatever they want. It's ironic that it was their own token that they didn't do a good job, but like, doesn't the network have to be resilient enough for like anybody to drop a token in any way? Like, isn't 
<laughs> that it has to be able to handle that. We can't rely on the social layer to, to say this is what's appropriate. Well, I mean, speaking to the things, the non-tech savvy users, they have to rely on the public facing user interface that uh, Optimism launches. And if that's overloaded, then they're then the people who aren't tech savvy, they can't build their own UI. They can't, you know, figure out an, their own way to kind of like customize, like accessing the Optimism network. And what Optimism team, what the Optimism teams saw was happening because of this was that more tech savvy users, people who could understand the the protocol layer much better than the average um, OP user, they were building their own custom UIs to kind of uh, take funds. And one of the things that the Optimism team had said they were concerned about was that these custom built UIs would actually be used to fish funds from Optimism users. And they were concerned that because of the kind of decentralized property of everyone creating their own access to the protocol, that for people who didn't really know better, they would start to use the ones that were were malicious and were actually going to steal users' funds rather than help them get access to their funds. Um, and I do think that's actually a pretty interesting... Um, it's a pretty interesting concern about how dangerous it is kind of to be playing around this in this space without a strong technical background um, and how much users still need to rely on centralized players like centralized teams like the OP team to really have proper access to their assets. Yeah, I mean, I it, OK, here's just like on that point, then obviously on this issue, uh it's an interesting point that like, you know, you should use our centralized front end or the one that we blessed, like, because there's risk in others being malicious or poorly designed. What about more broadly? Like is optimism decentralized today? Like how centralized is it? It's absolutely centralized today. Um, the whole role of the sequencer, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a heavy lift for, for optimistic rollups in general. Um, and, you know, it's not something that can be decentralized right away. I think one important part of like the uh, the short like learning module that Optimism put you through was that it had listed that like its whole governance structure, um, the platform itself was experimental, and so you know everything <laughs> that they may be like testing in production, and you know you may have like real funds at stake here, but at the same time. Um, you know, they're building something that no one's really built before and they're not ready to, to decentralize just yet and open it up to the public, but they have solutions in place that they're working towards. Yeah. And one interesting thing to that point, Chuck, because I totally agree, is this effort to try and make the OP token airdrop as decentralized as possible to real users that will help grow the optimism ecosystem. So we talked about in a prior podcast that they blacklisted addresses that they knew were to be Sybils. And that was an effort to make sure that the tokens that are being distributed are going to real users. And the activity that is kind of obvious to, to us who've been around in the space where the OB token was was dropped and then immediately, you know, people started dumping it. They started to trade the coins, the the, the initial price kind of kind of fell. Um, because a lot of that a lot of the people who received that token 
clearly we're, we're in it to make money. And it's not all that surprising, but I think um, there is now a lot of talk and discussion within the OP community about soulbound tokens, about NFTs that are given to an address and it can't be transferred. And again, to try and to try and, and really optimize a way to do on-chain governance, to do decentralized governance for a decentralized protocol, I think it's a really hard problem to solve. Um, but unfortunately, I think the token drop, the Optimism's first airdrop, and even the whole um, blacklisting of Sybil addresses has only, uh, I think has only um, made the, the problem of, of figuring out decentralized governance, um, just a lot worse. And I think there's been quite a lot um, of criticism towards the team about not only how they dropped the, uh, how this airdrop went, but also um, the way that they've gone about trying to, trying to ensure that everyone who gets the token is like a, a contributing member of the community. Um, I think the activity, the trading activity that we saw straight after this airdrop, which honestly wasn't surprising, just shows that, you know, airdrops are, it's not a great way to to um, create like a to bootstrap uh, to create governance. Yeah. Oh, for governance specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think there was a couple interesting issues here. Like overall, I mean, I, you know, I don't like, you know, I, I guess they can get there maybe on decentralization, but this is one of those things that, you know, I, I can't help but look at through Bitcoin tinted glasses here and just you know, great. They, they're trying something that's never been done. The tech could be really interesting, but you know, like if they're not at a point where they're decentralized and governance is a hard problem, it's not a crypto problem. Like this is crypto people trying to solve what humans have been working on for 50, maybe, maybe 50,000 years, right. How to organize and, and have good controls on, on that. Like, I mean that, so, you know, I, I just have to be skeptical in general. I, I believe firmly in a, uh, that layer two networks are important to scale uh, foundational layer ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, but I just have to, you know, I'm not holding my breath on, on some of this stuff. I'm going to believe it when I see it um, when it comes to something like decentralization. Cause if, you know, I don't have decentralization, then, you know, it, maybe I'm privileged, but a bank account works fine for me. Um, so that's where the innovation is. I don't want people to forget that. Like, and I love that they're working on it and we're trying, but also by the way, just as a hot take on soulbound tokens, like I think it's an interesting concept, right? These are, it's like a, uh, like a one of one or a non-fungible token that you can't transfer. It can only be sent to you and then you can never move it. Um, it's an interesting concept. I think it's fundamentally terrible for privacy. It's, it, it has other issues as well. Fundamentally awful for privacy. Um, and so, um, it's also kind of just like what a public key is to be clear. <laughs> like you don't actually need to put a token in the wallet. Maybe, maybe to interact with some dApps like, and you know, just the way that this on-chain environment has been architected, like it's useful, but um, it's, it seems like one of these, like, Oh, we reinvented yet another thing that we already have. Um, and it, I, I'm just, I'm again, I'm, I'm, I don't like it. I don't like the idea. I like the idea. I don't like the implications in some ways. Um, Let's not belager this too much. Uh, we've talked about optimism a lot, but you know we'll keep watching. It's one of the more important projects in the layer two space in general on any network. Um, so we'll be following it. And, and thank you, Chuck uh, and Christine, for um, overviews on it. And um, let's move on. 
All right, so let's talk about our third topic today, Solana, um, the altcoin layer one network. Um, Saul Kadir on our team, who's here today, also uh, wrote a very good and detailed report called Surveying Solana, um, part of our Ready Layer One series, where we uh, write about sort of what's happening in the alt L1 space. Um, released last Friday, surveyingsolana.com takes you right to that report. It, it was interesting. I mean, I learned a lot about Solana, how it works, like the level of adoption that we're seeing or not seeing, and the um, and the challenges that they've been fo- you know having. I think anyone following the crypto space has you know learned up seeing these outages and 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 whatever else. And and you know, it really, the report does a great job explaining why those have happened and you know asks if they're uh, you know how impactful um, they'll be for the future of Solana and and what the team is trying to do to mitigate or solve for that. But, you know, let me just go to you, Saul, um, give us an overview of, uh, of Solana and, and what you, um, uh, found in the report and, um, and, you know, just where Solana fits in first. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, you know, high level Solana is a proof of stake layer one blockchain that's known for, for being really fast and having low transaction fees. And it's also known for being built on a very unique technical architecture that is not really approached in that same way by other layer ones. And it's more focused on hardware optimizations. It's non-EVM compatible. Um, and it just overall uses some pretty novel tech- technological, they call them you know, eight key breakthroughs to make it scalable. And on top of that foundation, Solana has over the past couple of years sort of transformed into perhaps the most complete alternative to the Ethereum network. Uh, there's a few markers that might point to this. You could look at its full integration with multiple prominent NFT platforms, the rapid rise of DApps like Step N, uh, and impressive engagement metrics across multiple vectors. Uh, it also generally has a good user experience uh, with wallet infrastructures like Phantom, uh, Fiat on ramps with the big guys, Coinbase, FTXs of the world. Uh, powerful DeFi primitives, an execution environment that's monolithic, so it's fully composable and easy for developers to use, and overall strong numbers on both the user and the developer front. And also, this this user growth is pretty diversified across different vectors inside of crypto. It's not just one aspect. It's not just DeFi. It's DeFi. It's NFTs. It's even DAOs. And now we're starting to see, quote unquote, just traditional Web3 dApps that don't touch those two or might embody multiple aspects. And overall, we're still seeing strong developer growth. Now, granted, all of those great things um, comes at this sort of consistent problem that Solana has been having. Even today, as we record this podcast, Solana is enduring an outage. Outages have been an issue that have plagued this network um, for a while now, and it's still something they're working on. Um, It's not clear when or if this can be fully solved, just given some of the design decisions they've made. And also, this is also kind of an issue with other proof-of-state networks, but centralization is certainly a factor in Solana, much more centralized than Ethereum and Bitcoin, for sure. No, I mean, I just, on the differentiation, I think let's start there because, um, I mean, to the extent that I have found Solana to be interesting personally, it's been because it is quite different than other networks, both certainly obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum, but even the other Ethereum challengers, right? Like some of their decisions on, right, building in Rust, like not being EVM, uh, you know, an EVM chain, um, 
focusing on monolithic scaling instead of a layered scaling approach or something more modular, like even newer blockchain ideas, um, all set it uh, pretty much apart from the rest, right? And make it very different. Like, that is interesting to me. I mean, I, I don't know if that bet ends up working, but, um, you know, and the outages to me are pretty existential. I know, Christine, you feel similarly on the outages. I do. I think it's a major problem that um, Solana is betting on the fact that they can build a scalable smart contract blockchain like Ethereum without a mempool, without going towards modular scaling path. They're taking a very different path. And to prove that that path works, they need to fix these outages because if they're not able to fix these outages and they have to continue to rely on centralized means to address these outages, then I think over time, the value proposition of the chain in comparison to other decentralized alternatives like Ethereum will win out. So I think on that point, it's brought up a lot. Remember in September, that was kind of the first prominent outage. Um, everyone was saying that, oh, okay, it's over for Solana, guys. Uh, people are going to not tolerate outages. Well, it turns out people tolerate outages. The wallet numbers have gone up. Number of dApps has gone up. Developer activity is not really slowing down. And people are not, they're kind of shrugging off these outages. Because um, you have to think about context. If I'm taking out, you know, this is obviously not really possible today, but if crypto is successful, if one could take out a mortgage using just DeFi, um, Perhaps, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you don't want an outage to affect something with that high stakes. But if I'm just using an NFT platform, I'm just staking a DGOD, for instance, and I just want to sweep $30 of dust into USDC every day, and an outage just means I have to wait till tomorrow, it's fine. Like, I'll wait till tomorrow because the most of the time I can do a lot of my microtransactions and things that are just not possible in other blockchains. And I can kind of tolerate that, and I'm already sort of used to it with Legacy Web 2, Things like the PlayStation Network that would be out for like three days in the middle of summer, like that. That annoyed me. That was that was bad. <laughs> I remember being upset about that. Um, so, I mean, wait. So, your point, and, and we'll dive into some of these numbers too. But your point is that um, sure, there are outages. There, it's obviously an issue, but it's it's at the moment for w- what people are using it for a lot. It's not an issue for all of those uses. Right, right. Like to be clear, outages need to be solved, and if it keeps happening over and over. Then I think your point does make sense. Like, if there's a better alternative, it only makes sense to have no outages versus some. But I, yeah, right. I just don't think it's going to like kill the chain in this, let's call it one to two year interim period before scaling solutions actually are fully implemented in things like Ethereum. And it's all about adoption and getting market share. Yeah. I think that Ethereum and Solana are both trying, are racing each other. They're in this, this competition of who can fix some of the critical issues that they have on their chain faster than the other with Ethereum right now. They don't have the scale. They don't have the speed that Solana has, but Solana has the speed and the scale, but they have the outages problem. The only area where I see this argument kind of falter is for Ethereum, even if it can't achieve scalability, even if it can't achieve extremely fast transactions, it always has a foundational purpose and value proposition that it can always fall back on, which are decentralized 
smart contracts, like unstoppable code on the blockchain. And there might be use cases like micro payments that Ethereum, if it doesn't achieve scalability, will never get to. But there is still a place for smart contracts and use cases and dApps that can help change the world. But then when it comes to Solana, if it doesn't, if it's not able to fix the outages problem, then I wonder what the use case is that that blockchain can fall back on. If there is no decentralization, if the outages prove that, you know, the applications that are running on that platform aren't very reliable and can't be relied on for, you know, uptime, like what is Solana's value proposition if it's not able to achieve the the vision that it's 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 chasing after, which is fixing this this outages problem? Because I can see on Ethereum, even if it's not able to fulfill all the promises that it's achieving, it's already achieved. Even with what it has, like even with the infrastructure it has, right, right, product there's still a place for it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think to that point, what you're kind of alluding to is the worst case scenario. Like, what if they they could never fix the outages thing, and they have to? The only way they could survive is they have to do something like as extreme as a mempool with just generic fees, like every other layer one. That's the worst case scenario. The question then becomes: Okay, well, they at that point they will have already onboarded probably multiple millions of users and it'll just be it'll look like every other layer one blockchain you know slightly different it's more hardware hardware optimized and things like that but certainly like that's the hardest part it's not about just having the most pure tech i think people fail to realize this when you look at just technological innovations throughout history um you know ipv4 versus ipv6 uh betamax vhs blu-ray hd dvd it's just, it, the hardest part is just getting people to use it. And once a thing is good enough, that tends to just be the thing that people use, even if there's superior solutions or more pure solutions. And so I think it's very hard to ignore the fact that a lot of people are using Solana. And Solana, is all, it's, it's more decentralized than things like BNB Chain, which can also hit similar numbers. And it's kind of favored by people that just want the thing to have a lot of throughput and easy user experience. It, it, it's going to be hard to kind of unwind that in the worst case scenario, which is why, um, to your point, I think they will always have a use, just like Ethereum will always have use. I don't think it's going to just replace Ethereum completely for all use cases, but I do think it has a place and they've kind of established solid footing in that regard. I would actually argue the opposite, um, that the switching costs are so low that it's so easy for any user to, to leave Solana and find the same type of applications on any other chain. Find me, um, step in on another chain. But, Where that? Uh, I don't see it. On, there's one on. There's one on Avalanche. <laughs> What's is there? Is there one? Like, is, 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 are the sneakers for that one listed on a liquid marketplace like Magic Eden? Like that's what, like Solana has all these pieces. It has liquidity at the DeFi level. It has very mature marketplaces. It has good wallet infrastructure. Like another chain can copy one of those, but they can't copy all of that. That's very hard to do. They've done it. Yeah, but like, what is Solana's audience here? Like, I think when they first started out, they were sort of catering towards towards the DeFi crowd. Um, you know, with all the devs, uh, you know, in, in the Chicago trading area. But but over time, it kind of expanded to to more like retail user base. So the, the I'll give the kind of the story there when Anatoly was playing around with crypto in 2017. Uh, or I guess before that, he was obsessed with programmatic trading, like on you know just equities. 
And he found, he discovered the idea of like front running and just the idea that institutions will always have more ammunition to trade and to have better positions and liquidity. And so, so with that frame of mind is how he designed Solana to be, they called it at the time NASDAQ at blockchain speeds. Uh, and I kind of talk about it in the report. Um, so you're right. Like it was all about DeFi and still is very important aspect of Solana. It's programmatic trading, just moving information very quickly around um, that. That is important, but they just kind of stumbled into like additional utility. And this happens off all the time with, with tech. Just look at the app store was like not supposed to be a thing with the iPhone. Like Steve Jobs reluctantly approved third-party apps six months after the iPhone came out. He would, they would have never predicted that things like TikTok, Uber, all of these crazy new applications on your phone would have ever come out. And they did. And similarly with Solana, like they kind of stumbled into the NFT thing because Ethereum just got so expensive and there was already a great wallet in Phantom this past summer. And now they're the clear number two NFT place. I mean, if you look at the market cap, subtract out Yuga Labs from Ethereum's NFT market cap and Solana's NFT total market cap is about half. Uh, No other chain is like anywhere near that order of magnitude close to the juggernaut. What about other metrics, Chuck, uh, Saul, on like on adoption like that? You said something crazy uh, to us about like the number of phantom wallets that have interacted with like an NFT or something. Yeah, yeah. So according to phantoms, obviously this this data is is kind of through them, but taking them at their word, um, I think it was 70 percent of phantom wallets own at least one NFT, uh, which is staggering. And it kind of just sort of illustrates this idea that Solana kind of has their hands in multiple vectors in crypto that are all helping each other out. Um, and, and a high level, like to your point, Alex, like other metrics, we just run through like the, ma- the major vectors. Uh, DeFi, TVL, around $4 billion. Um, NFT market cap, which I was talking about earlier, it's about $1.4 billion. So ETH NFTs are about $10 billion, right? But if you take out Yuga Labs, just 70% of that, it, it comes down to about three. So that's a very impressive number. Um, circulating USDC. So if you think about the payments use case, it's about four billion or four point eight billion dollars on Solana. And then Dow Treasuries. If you look at deep Dow, look at the hundred top hundred DAOs and sort them by biggest treasury to smallest, it's either ETH and there's a few Solana ones peppered in there. And no other chain has a treasury big enough to like make it to that list. And so the collective sum of Solana Dow Treasuries is about half a billion dollars. Um, and, and then you just have the crazy numbers with you know, step in. They were saying that they had about 2 million users and Solana, you know, 73% stake. So it's, all of these numbers point to like a diversified ecosystem. I still struggle with this, right? And frankly, I've for a long time struggled with Ethereum for this as a Bitcoiner. And, but it just goes down, like goes down the line, right? Like what is a blockchain for, right? Like, and I, you know, I, I know, I believe um, that if you want to make decentralized sound money, then you need you need a Bitcoin for that. And and I guess if we extend the metaphor um, and you want to do other decentralized things, well, Bitcoiners rightly don't want to do those on, on Bitcoin because their primary goal is so big. Um, it's such a big, you know, uh, you know, feat that Satoshi, um, you know, presented with Bitcoin to, you know, create non-sovereign, truly secure and decentralized money that they Bitcoiners don't want to clutter up the the chain with a bunch of stuff like walk to earn. Um, and then Ethereum, you know, is sort of born out of that 
that desire to keep Bitcoin focused and not, you know, add a virtual machine to Bitcoin. And so we get a lot of, you know, new uh, uses for a blockchain out of Ethereum, right? And then all these other um, smart contract enabled, you know, general computation blockchains are sort of variations on what Ethereum is doing, mostly trying to improve on some of the fundamental characteristics and process of using Ethereum, right? Basically similar in terms of goal, um, but trying to be faster or trying to be like, you know, cheaper, right? And um, by the way, most of those at the expense of decentralization, at least for now, they claim, right? You know, become more decentralized or more secure over time. And like, so I just haven't, I guess maybe it's a statement, I'm getting to this with your argument here for Solana, even as is, which is interesting that, you know, as long as the outages are, you know, short and that might limit the use cases for this blockchain until they're solved, which, you know, which is why it needs to get solved. But that there is, they're sort of like going further down the list of use cases, right? Like Solana's not trying to like create a a non-sovereign, you know, hard money. Right. They're trying to what make like it's more games and, and apps like such a good point, actually, because I think Solana and I were talking about this, um, that it, by design, it wasn't meant to be money. Right. There wasn't necessarily meant to be a monetary premium. And what I took from that was by design, this is supposed to be an application platform, a peer to application integration and interacting with applications. Uh, so it facilitate gaming, facilitate NFTs, facilitate uh, this future metaverse mm-hmm. idea. And that's kind of what I've always seen in Solana. And and so when you told me that that by design Anatoly really wasn't meaning for Solana to be money, that hit home. Yeah, I mean, sort of on the the outages and kind of like the purpose of Solana. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of pulled this from an interview. It wasn't even an interview. It was uh, that famous panel where Anatoly, uh, Eamon Gensire, Joe Kwan were on the same podcast. And one of the questions that was asked of all three of them was, "Is is Solana money?" And Anatoly basically said no. He was like. It's supposed to just be this protocol used to exchange information very quickly. And he kind of posited that one could build money on top of it, but the actual soul token was not supposed to be primarily for that. And to Lule's point, um, it seems to me, I think the initial vision and still a strong part of that vision is the DeFi aspect and programmatic trading. But uh, the long-term vision is tokenizing assets. It's kind of being this base layer for the metaverse, so to speak. Uh, which is on the NFT side, it's on the gaming side, and being this composable execution environment that can tie all of these different vectors together. And I can kind of dive a little bit into the outages because I know there was another question there about what's causing it. Can they? Can it be solved? Yeah, tell it. Well, tell us what the team is is working on and and to what the ideas are for solving it. Right, right. So the outages ultimately boil down to kind of the same problem propping up again, uh, which is spam. And this is a problem that's affected the internet, you know, before blockchains were ever a thing. And traditionally, one way to solve for spam is to charge people for doing a transaction. So you, most of the blockchains have fee markets for this reason. Um, Solana has fixed low fees, and that's to create a consistent and good user experience. And that's just part of the DNA of how Solana works and how it's different. And so when you remove that sort of weapon from your arsenal, uh, you start to run into issues where oftentimes it's NFT uh, mints. Botters will start spamming the network. And because Solana is architected in a way where uh, the val- all the transactions go to one validator and they have to basically accept all of them because they're UDP, UDP packets. 
Uh, so there's no throttling available for them to. So they can't they can't inspect the data and decide to like leave some out. Right. Well, the, the inspection happens at a different stage. It's later. And so the validator will just accept all the spam, and then it'll just go offline before it could even get to that. The, the inspection's like called. It's like a D, it basically becomes DDoS. Right, right, right. right. It, like it just, yeah. Um, and so in terms of fixes, um, there, there's kind of a, a couple of key ones. Uh, one is switching from UDP packets to Quick, and basically the TLDR with this is it'll allow validators to throttle incoming traffic and be more selective instead of just accepting all of it. Um, so the reason they used UDP was precisely because it was fast. Uh, it didn't require handshakes. But they're finding that they might this might be a good sort of hybrid solution that still maintains a lot of the speed, but has some optionality for throttling that spam traffic. Um, and, and then the second one is somewhat of a fee market. It's not the fee market in the sense that other blockchains use. I think a lot of people in the community are referring it to as neighborhood fee markets, but basically users neighborhood yeah like users yeah. will be able to attach arbitrary additional fees to increase their transactions execution priority um and so like if something on an nft program is starting to get spammed a lot and you're on DeFi, you can pay an additional fee and make sure your position is covered and sort of skip the line so to speak while they figure out or try to throttle the nft traffic uh, none of these changes have been implemented yet, which is why there's another outage today. And rumors are saying it's another NFT meant, but we're still not sure of the details on that. Right. Yeah, because so and I think, Christine, you said this, Saul, you said this too earlier. But like if they we know how they could solve it today. Right. We know they could solve spam with a, a, a at a mempool, a transaction queue and a broad network wide adjustable fee market. Right. We know that solves the spam issue. The problem is that also makes it look a lot like its competitors, right? That'll that'll make it get really expensive to use sometimes. The way Ethereum has had issues with that. Um, by the way, fees on ETH today are like thirteen cents for a transaction <laughs> estimated. But fair so, market so fees. That's, it, yeah. So right, but like that that that'll sort of deep six a lot of Solana's differentiating value proposition on the user side, right? It, it, it might still be fast, but it'll become subject to market forces across the whole network for how expensive it is. So it, the whole game right now feels like figure out any other way to solve this without doing that. Yes. And kind of expanding on that from a technical sort of perspective, the way the protocol is engineered, like the, one of the reasons it's fast is precisely because they don't need a mempool and they kind of have leaders, uh, known leader schedules. And you can kind of know what the order of the transactions are generally because you also have the proof of history clock. Uh, so if you try to do something like a mempool and a generic fee, which is, it would not be nearly as fast. It would kind of make all of that tech debt pointless. Uh, so I'm very skeptical they would ever do something like that. I, I do think... There's more elegant or, I guess, uh, innovative ways to, to add fee markets to this, which is perhaps one of the advantages, as weird as this sounds, of kind of taking the opposite approach, getting users quickly, good UX, and then running to the outages issue, is that they can kind of step back and like take completely novel approaches to implementing something like a fee market that other blockchains, which did it much earlier at the protocol level, wouldn't be able to unwind. And so... You know, if, if everything goes according to plan, they might end up with a pretty interesting solution that kind of solves for both a UX problem and still uh, can control for spin. 
Yeah, it like will have been pretty ridiculous if in two years they can't do the, those innovative solutions don't work and then they do go to a mempool and a transaction fee. It'll like from a narrative standpoint, it'll have been pretty ridiculous. However, they will have built a whole thing by then, and then what? The worst argument is they look a lot like their competitor. Like it's actually like, like better to in, in a way, just in a pure sort of order of operations, theoretically better to have had nothing and slow, slowly added pieces to try to solve it. Um, they they basically view the fee markets that Bitcoin and Ethereum use as like the worst case scenario. So rather than start with it, try everything else first. It's kind of interesting. We don't know if it's going to work. Let's be clear. I mean, block space, there's always going to be demand for block space. That's like the philosophical question we ask ourselves. It's like, I think it's called Gervain's paradox, where as you increase capacity and throughput, more people will want to use the thing. And so then you just keep hitting the same issue. It's like it's like induced demand. It's like when you add lanes to a highway, like you often get more drivers. Yes, yeah, exactly right. Right. Um, but it seems like these solutions might help. You know, time will tell. So um, this has been awesome. We didn't even really, to be honest, scratch really the surface of what Saul has in the report. Tons of data on users. There's a lot. How many phantom wallets do, are there? This... It's north of two million. So phantoms like a MetaMask. Um, alternative but for solana um like similar user experience but i i haven't used it but Sol, like you use it a lot it's better you say than metamask in a lot of ways in some in some regards it is better um two cool features they have that metamask try to do but it's so inconsistent is you can see your nfts in there and you could delegate your stake in the actual browser extension uh, by name you could name whatever validator you want to stake with and do it there um you know, it's, it's just a pretty slick wallet and yeah I mean, I not think bugs. I'm hearing like, so on, on my point earlier, like, you know, different, I still believe the most potent use of a blockchain for, you know, personally for me is like to create decentralized sound money. Um, but a lot of people believe it's to do financial services, right. And do other, right. On, a, uh, so, you know, the Ethereum community has built a, a true massive amount of really innovative, like smart contracts um, in DeFi in, in in a bunch of other verticals. Um, I guess there just is demand, a lot of it, to use one that is for, I guess, today, you know, NFTs and games, maybe some DeFi also, um, but that is less resilient and faster and cheaper. And, and I guess that just exists. Yeah, Christine. But if... The demand truly for Solana right now is because of how usable and how great the UI is for Solana. I think that Solana will come to terms with the fact that they will never be as usable as Web2 because Solana is on this like, they kind of have their foot in both worlds where they're trying to be semi-decentralized, but sacrificing decentralization for usability. And it's true, Solana is a lot more usable than other blockchains, but because they've sacrificed some of the fundamental properties of how blockchains remain- Like resilient. Permissionless. Yeah. yeah, and so I think to that point, like if all this demand is truly because of how usable and great the UI is on Solana, Web2 will always win out on that sense. And for for- the core rationale for even starting Solana as a blockchain, if that was for decentralized finance, the outages are a major problem. And maybe that's why the vision that Anatoly originally had for Solana hasn't quite been panning out and they've been 
more pivoting towards like play to earn games, ones where you don't need to rely so much on on having the blockchain be up during times of, of high congestion. So I truly wonder, I guess, whether it's a good thing that right now the main driver for Solana is how usable the applications are. Because as we talked with the airdrop for Optimism, some people who are very tech, tech savvy had to build their own user interfaces to even interact with the Optimism blockchain. And in the right. beginning of Ethereum days, their wallet was literally a command line interface. Yeah. The only people who could transact on Ethereum were people who were extremely tech savvy. And I personally think that that is a function of the fact that blockchains, by nature of their technology, is is pretty clunky right now. It doesn't have a great UI because it's decentralized. Right. Like I hope that change changes, but um, that wasn't the value proposition of why blockchains came into existence. It wasn't to create UI. I totally agree. But again, like this is, that's how I view blockchains also. But um, there's 2 million people who apparently are putting up with that. I mean, that that's that's the theory versus practice. Like, I, that's what I mean is like the Solana is kind of expanding the, not only use cases, but like the, the acceptable resiliency of blockchains, right? I mean, yes, yeah, kind of on those all those points, Christine. And if you're an ideological purist for decentralization and crypto, you can cover your ears. But the reason why I'm not worried about any of that stuff is just look at the GDP. Like, you know, financial services was like ten to fifteen to twenty percent tops, and attention economy companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google. Uh, they're, they're increasingly dominant. It's crypto is about enabling the future facing companies to exist in a permissionless manner in a manner where users can own a piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, so it's not just about pure DeFi. Yes, it's an important primitive and they need to fix the outages to make that all work because uh, it's, it's a key component for the liquidity part of that equation. But Solana is demonstrating that, yes, they can make credibly decentralized Web3 versions of existing killer apps, starting with something like as simple as Step N, but soon you'll start to see games adopt this, uh, this, these primitives that are working, that are fast, that are cheap. And I think it's, it's very powerful. The, the, it is a very big TAM that they already kind of are dipping their toes in on the NFTs and the gaming and the DAO side and just connecting all those pieces together with one shared state, um, it, it's pretty it's pretty compelling in my view and again um, time will tell if they can figure out all the issues but certainly I'm, I'm not seeing any other layer one with this level of I guess maturity in all those vectors that's also like fast and cheap today that's fair I I truly agree that the the amount of adoption that Solana has has surged to is truly quite mind-boggling I unfortunately still don't quite understand like the the fundamentals behind it which is why i keep coming back to is this sustainable but i i agree with you that 100 percent the the growth and the and the tam that solana has is is quite is quite impressive so definitely check out uh saul's report um very balanced and detailed on all these topics we didn't go into Solana's technology, which is plenty interesting and very different on this podcast, but Saul does a great job explaining um, how it relies on time as a primitive, um, how it um, uses proof of history, this this mechanism. Um, also, plenty of all the info on validators and 
centralization and cost to run a node and 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 all the metrics that's in many more on adoption and all the descriptions of the challenges on outages and what the team thinks all of that is in there very very much encourage you to read it you know i i i find it very interesting primarily because it is so different than others right i mean if something is the same and and i you know i'm fascinated by blockchain design and so you know while you know, different uses, uh, you know, different strokes for different folks, different uses for different blockchains. I, I think that's true. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, we, we wrote this at the top of Ready Layer One that we don't really think Bitcoin um, is competing with Ethereum or, or Ethereum competing with Bitcoin on what Bitcoin does. And that's both by design and sort of reality of Bitcoin focused on its main property and driving that home. Um, and then, but that we do see, I think, um, all of these all L1s like Solana and Avalanche and, you know, whichever others are, are kind of essentially competing with Ethereum, which is the standard bearer for the smart contract general computation platform. Um, that was our thesis in Ready Layer One. And we've been going deep into a variety of those Ethereum challengers and finding really interesting stuff. So check it out, surveyingsolana.com. Great job, Saul, on that report. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, um, and I and I know our readers will as well. Um, that's it. That's all we've got today. Um, you know, no quick hits because we're already way over time. And uh, and just want to thank everyone who joined. Um, Tyler Williams from Galaxy uh, Digital Public Policy and Regulatory Affairs, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading, uh, Charles Yu, Christine Kim, Lule Mascal, and Saul Kadir from Galaxy Digital Research. Um, check us out, galaxydigital.io slash research. Um, and this was Galaxy Brains. Have an excellent weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXYResearch and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.